Our scripture lesson this morning, from which I'm going to preach on one of the verses, is from Psalm 110, the 110th Psalm, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. This is the word of the Lord. About a month ago, I reached out to a truly old and dear friend. Old in every sense of the word. He's now 86, but he's also a very long-time friend of mine, and while it's not true that old friends are always the best friends, those that persevere through life and really stay with you, they really are. And he is such a friend of mine, a colleague in ministry. But the reason why I reached out to him was I had a a two-year stint where I was a Reformed Episcopalian, and I met Fuchs through that. We were both in seminary together. And while I was in the Reformed Episcopal Church, I wasn't a particularly good Episcopalian. Uh, I didn't really believe in Episcopalian government, and that's kind of a requirement to be there. So it was a little bit of an odd fit. But nevertheless, I was a Episcopalian at that point, and Episcopalians have godfathers. It's a tradition in certain parts of the church. And Fuchs, being very dear to me, I actually made him Alethea's godfather. And since Alethea graduated from PhD work this month, I thought he might want to know that. Uh, And we got to talking. I reminded him of our debates about church government. Uh, Fuchs is all in on Episcopalianism, and we would spend many an evening debating how the church is supposed to be governed, and uh, I was still kind of crystallizing how that worked. I believe that elders were, were called to be in the church, plurality of elders, um, but Fuchs would always defend Episcopalianism, and Episcopalianism is built around ascending orders of bishops. You have a head bishop, whether that's the Archbishop of Canterbury or whether that's uh, you know, the Pope or whether that's a patriarch. There's a head guy, and then under him you have different orders of rulers. Sometimes it gets very complex, but they're all bishops. And ultimately you have a bishop over uh, ministers. There'd be several ministers in several churches. There'll be a bishop over them. And Fuchs would always defend Episcopalianism in this way. He would say, Russ, you don't understand. 
You are, you are concerned about the consolidation of power in a man, but if you have a godly bishop, he will be able to truly minister to the pastors in the church. You don't have a pastor when you are at a Congregationalist or a Presbyterian, but in Episcopalianism, if you have a godly bishop, you have a, a godly man to pastor the pastors, and, and ministers need that. If you have a godly bishop, he is able to come from outside and minister to the congregation. If something goes wrong in the congregation, as happens, if you have some sort of church split or conflict, a godly bishop can come in and he can minister to the congregation in ways you can't. He can solve problems. If you have a godly bishop, you'll have a man who is steering churches all in the same direction for a godly purpose, if you have a godly bishop. Well, after about seven of these conversations, I looked Fuchs in the eye and said, Fuchs, you are 62. You have been in the Episcopal Church all your life. You are now a minister in the Episcopal Church. In all your experience of being in an Episcopalian church, have you ever, once in your life, ever known a bishop that you would call a godly bishop? And without missing a beat, he looked me in the eye and said, no, but if there was a godly bishop. Let that sink in for just a second. Uh, it's actually kind of a watershed moment for me. I I remember that like it was yesterday, and we had a laugh about it on the phone. But in thinking about that conversation, ironically, I have to say, Fuchs was wrong. See, there is, in existence, at least one godly bishop. Now, the way the Bible uses the term bishop is not the way our brothers and sisters in the Episcopal Church use the term. The term bishop in Scripture is episkopos, and that's where you get the the name Episcopalian. It's based off the government style. Uh, But episkopos means um, uh, overseer. And if you look how the apostles use the term, because it does show up in Scripture, it's effectively synonymous with the term elder. And you can see that in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having Faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. You'll see that that's talking about the elders. You know, you're going to set in order elders. The churches need elders. But then he says this, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And, And it goes on. But if you look and see what the apostle has done there, he has used the term bishop and elder synonymously. Elder is a term for leader in the church. 
Bishop is a term for leader in the church. They have certain slightly different emphasis. But in the, the earliest of churches, whether you were a presbyteros, which is the word for elder, or you were an episkopos, which is the word for bishop, you were a leader in the church, and there was a plurality of you, and the entire Episcopalian structure was kind of added on as time went on. And it's not really the nature of this sermon to explain why, but it's kind of a fascinating story. But the reason why I go into this is just to say, in the Bible, uh, the term episkopos and the term presbyteros are pretty much synonymous. They're talking about the same kind of guy. But be that as it may... The scripture assures me that a godly bishop, and I'm now using the term in the Episcopalian way, a godly bishop does exist. He has to. If you go to uh, the second chapter of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter tells me about that bishop. It is verse 25 of the second chapter. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And the term is, as you might expect, episkopos. It is a bishop. And in the King James Bible, I'm almost positive, it translates it as you return to the bishop of your souls. The reference is to our Lord Christ, and he is called an episkopos which is usually synonymous with the term elder, but it does turn out that in one particular case, there is an elder above all elders. There is a bishop above all bishops. And uh, Peter will kind of hammer that home as he gets to the end of his book. When you get to the, the last chapter of First Peter, we read this. The elders, the presbyteros, who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, so Peter actually identifies his apostleship as a form of elder, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, there's our term again, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, so you who are elders, you who are uh, bishops, uh, you have somebody over you. There, there's not, you're the head, there's, there's a chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So even in churches like ours, a congregationalist church or a Presbyterian church that emphasizes that the leadership in the church is on an equal level, all elders are equal, it's not quite true. There is an elder above us. There is a bishop above us. He owns that title. Uh, It is part of his ministry to the church. But he is way over us, and we have not even the right to untie his, his sandal. Jesus Christ is literally bishop of all bishops. He is elder of all elders. 
He owns these titles, and we only uh, slightly emulate him in his grace when those titles are given to us. So when Fuchs looked me in the eye and said, I never met a godly bishop, he has met one. Uh, I'll have to remind him of it next time I talk to him. There is a godly bishop, and he is right now in his church. He is right now bishoping, and he will to the end of time. He is the Lord Christ, and he is above all bishops. What does it mean that a bishop is an overseer? Because that is the very best translation of the term. Well, uh, there's a, a number of connotations. An overseer watches. I mean, you hear it right in the term. He is watching to see what is going on. An overseer that closes his eyes in sleep that pays no attention to what has been given to him, uh, that is a very poor overseer. He's not doing his job. An overseer is an eye that makes sure everything is happening rightly and godly. Uh, An overseer watches over things, which sounds like a synonym with what I just said, but not really. You might have someone who is watching all things, keeping an eye, making a record, but really not making sure everything is going right, but a true overseer is looking over something to make sure everything stays healthy and good and right and appropriate. Well, Jesus is doing that. He is overseeing his church. He is watching over his church. And not only that, an overseer really cares about what he is overseeing. An overseer has been assigned a piece of the garden, or the whole garden in this case, uh, and he is watching it and he is watching over it, but he is also invested in it and he deeply cares about what he is watching over. It, it, It is owned by him, it is his ministry, and the term shepherd came up a number of times. You heard that when Peter was talking about the elders, the overseers, Well, Jesus is a shepherd, and shepherds love their flock. They really have to. They have to give themselves to their flock. They have to take pains for their flock. They have to stay up all night in cold weather. They endure hardship for their flock. Well, there is a godly bishop. There's one, at least, and he's very much like that. He he deeply, you might even say he was willing to bleed for us. He was willing to be divine, but to surrender everything that divinity pretty much means and be born as a man to be found in the form of a servant uh, because he cares for us. He had to come down to the flock. He had to really minister among us. And even now he is among us and caring for us. Um, As I have already pointed out, a, a bishop is a shepherd, he is a, a guide. He, he walks beside his flock. He leads them to still waters. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He's right there with his bishop staff. Uh, you ever seen those, by the way? Bishops carrying those staffs? Those are awesome. Um, I had a, a real burst of, of affection for the Reformed Episcopal bishops at one worship service we were at. Um, it was a convocation for the seminary, and 
the dean of the school was so intimidated by the fact that we were going to be there, he had ramped up his incredible pomposity and worship to as high as he could go. And he was talking like this, we have come into the presence of God and soon the bishops will come in. And I looked out the window and the godly bishops of the Reformed Episcopal Church were out in the yard waiting to come in, but they were sword fighting with their staves. It was just really awesome. But uh, they carry those staves because they are shepherds. They, they, if they do their job right, they walk with the flock, they defend the flock, they fight for the flock, they guide the flock to that aforesaid living waters and green pastures. Uh, th- this is no calling for the uninvested. The bishop takes responsibility for what he's overseeing. He is a man under authority, you might say. He tends to shepherd a flock that ultimately is answering to somebody above him, and he is someone who understands authority and his place in it. He has goals. He he is directing what he's overseeing to a certain goal, Uh, And he is faithful, this bishop. In the New Testament, there was a man who truly got this aspect of of authority. He was a Roman centurion, and you meet him in Matthew chapter 22. There we read this, beginning at verse 5. One page over. Uh, am I right? No, it's Matthew 8. Matthew 8, beginning at verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And this is highly commended. We read, When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The centurion got what real authority is supposed to be like. Uh, You're over, but you're under, and you're faithful. You're faithful to those who are above you, uh, and you're serving those above you by working with those below you, and really investing your lives in them, bleeding for them, living for them. The centurion identified Jesus as doing that. Now, whether he truly understood exactly what was happening, that this was the Son of God, and God the Father had sent him into the world to gather his flock and to die for them under the authority of his Father, I don't know if he had all that, but he understood This is a true bishop. This is a true man under authority. And I understand it because as a Roman centurion, I'm doing the same thing. You know, I've got a hundred men under me and I'm under somebody and that's who you are. And Jesus said, this is a faithful man. 
he has faith. He knows what's going on. And he does. He identified Jesus as being a man under authority, a good bishop. So this godly bishop is godly, and there's no question about it. Um, Jesus never stopped doing it, in fact. And I've already made that point, but the scripture itself makes that point. When you come to the book of Acts, Luke, when he begins Acts, um, this is how he starts. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the Greek is slightly awkward to translate into English. If you're going to make it a good English sentence, you would translate it, the former account I made, O Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. But the New King James is a fairly literal translation, so it tries to follow the Greek as much as it can. Uh, What Luke is saying is, I wrote a book... And it was about what Jesus began to do and teach. That's the Gospel of Luke. But when he uses the word began, he is now pointing towards this book, the book, the Acts of the Apostles, and he's saying Jesus was doing that, he's still doing this. And then he will begin to tell us about the early church and the Gospel going out. But the context is, this is what Jesus is doing. He is still bishoping his church. He is still shepherding his church to go on and read uh, until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, if our godly bishop is really with us and shepherding us and, and, and living among us, how can that be, considering that he has ascended on high? Well, that's what comes next. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Luke tells us, now Jesus was doing things in the Gospel of Luke. He is now continuing to do them. How is he doing them, considering he has ascended on high? The Holy Spirit has come to the church, and the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. They are two persons of the Godhead, but they have the entirety of the Godhead in them. They are in perfect union. And so Jesus is ministering this moment to his church, a godly bishop, the Spirit being among us. And uh, there's a tangible aspect to that. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, uh, points out the major way, not 
the only way, but the major way the Spirit ministers to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and beginning in verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned, says Paul, and been assured of, assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as the Nasby puts it, all scripture is God-breathed, and that is the best translation. All scripture has been God-breathed out and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You might find it interesting to note that the, the word for breath and the word for spirit in both Hebrew and in Greek is the same word. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's the same word being used when the Apostle says the Bible has been breathed out. He has connected the Spirit and the written word so that you can't pull them apart. And what you're seeing is how the godly bishop of the church governs his church. He governs by his Spirit and his word. And he is still among us. And these things don't contradict. If you see Jesus governing by the Spirit at the expense of the Word, uh, you're not understanding how the Spirit works. And if you see Jesus governing only by the Word and deny the presence and power of the Spirit, you don't know how the Word works. The Spirit has been sent by our godly bishop to be his presence. The Spirit moves among us and shapes and molds his church, The primary way he does it is through the written word of God, which has been breathed out. It partakes of the Spirit's very nature. And our godly bishop shepherds us this very moment. So uh, you can go tell people you're Episcopalians because you have a bishop. You have an episcopos. It's our Lord Christ. And he is above every bishop, every bishop of any type. He is the bishop of the church. Now, what can be said of bishops can also be said of kings. Our road to a sermon this morning took some interesting turns. I had to step out of the Gospel of John because this week Alethea was graduating and the whole week has been taken up with that. I thought I would preach on the psalm, which at that time was Psalm 148, but I didn't receive any inspiration from that. So I turned to Psalm 110, and I thought I would preach Psalm 110, and then I got lost in the first verse of Psalm 110 to the point where I could preach about seven sermons on this psalm. So I'm really preaching Psalm 110.1, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord, sit, well, I'll just read it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We are told this is a psalm of David. David is a lord. It's synonymous with king. David is king of the people of God. He is king of Israel. And yet he begins this very famous psalm with the Lord, Yahweh, God, Jehovah, says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand. It is not usual for kings and rulers of the earth to say, I have a boss. And that is exactly what David has just said. He has said there is God in heaven, and there's somebody between me and God in heaven. And I'm a lord, I'm king of Israel, but the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This passage, during the, the, the time that our Lord Jesus Christ walked on earth among us, was a very well-known passage, and it was something of a conundrum. And when the Lord wanted to trip the Pharisees good and proper, he brought it up. Going back to the book of Matthew, chapter uh, 22, which was where I had turned originally, uh, we have this very famous account which says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And they're totally right. The Bible clearly says the Christ will be the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit, so here Christ is hammering home again, the word of God is God-breathed, it's from the Holy Spirit. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Uh, Their conundrum was not solved for them, and Christ left them in their confusion. But we know the answer. In fact, we just sang it. We sang the second psalm. Uh, which they should have known. They should have known that the Lord would install someone higher than David. Uh, It turns out he's hiring David because he's divine. Um, The nations rage. The people, uh, you know, conspire against the Lord and against his Christ. But the Lord laughs and says, On Zion I have installed my, my king. I've installed the Christ. Um, and I've said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is something that David, son of Jesse, could never have said. It was never promised to, to David. There would be someone who God would tell all the world, this is my son. And I've installed him on Zion, and he is the king of kings. Because the kings are mocked at the beginning, they're conspiring against God, and God laughs at them, and then as the psalm ends... God says, now kiss my son. Kiss the son I have installed. Uh, He is the eternal ruler. All you kings of every stripe, kings of Moab, kings of China, kings of the tribes of North America, all you kings of the earth, kiss my son. He is the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. Uh, He is above them to the point where they disappear into significance under him just like bishops, pastors, elders. We wear the title, but compared to Christ, we disappear into insignificance. He is above us. Well, it turns out the same thing is true of kings. The kings of the earth disappear under the authority of Christ. They are insignificant. In fact, 
the, 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 the uh, prophet Isaiah says the kingdoms themselves are just like a drop in a bucket. It's nothing. Um, what, do, what do kings do? Well, uh, what kings do is pretty much what bishops do. It's just in a different environment. They watch. It is a very poor king who doesn't watch what's happening. To be king, you have to really know what's going on, and you have to watch over things. Your kingdom is yours to protect and defend, and really, if you are a good king, if you're doing your job right, you have to care for your kingdom. I mean, sure, you can be a despot, and you can rule with an iron hand and crush your subjects, but... Honestly, that's not what kingship is for. You are supposed to care for them, to shepherd them. A king is a shepherd, and he carries his own staff in a way. That staff is a weapon. It's designed to protect the sheep. While the king defends his country, he guides them, he shepherds them. Uh, He takes responsibility for it. He's the king. The buck stops there. And uh, apparently, according to Scripture, it turns out, the buck doesn't really stop there. There's somebody above him. There is a king above all kings, a lord of all lords, uh, like the centurion who was talking from a political standpoint. Um, the king answers to the higher king, answers to God. All kings, not just David, but all you kings of the world. Whether you are king of an atheistic country, whether you're king of a Buddhist country, whether you're king of any country, you kiss the sun, worship him, submit to him, be his vassal. Um, his wrath can flare up in a moment. But all those who have faith in him, he will care for. This doesn't seem all that different than our conversation on bishops. It just takes the issue of authority and puts it in a different environment. But the bishop of all bishops is the king of all kings, and actually, we could do this with every field of human endeavor. Wherever there is authority, guess who's above it? In the last words of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, when Jesus is about to give the Great Commission, which usually when that passage is focused on, that's the focus of the sermon, he says something right before the Great Commission that makes the Great Commission possible. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, all of it. All authority has been given to me. Not my ministers, not my kings, not my counselors, not my financial advisors, not anyone else, but all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So wherever you're looking for authority, in any sphere of life, above Every boss that can be named of any type, all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the greatest kings on earth had to begin his psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand till I make your uh, enemies your footstool. When human beings attempt to abrogate authority to themselves, and when they say the buck stops here in any field of endeavor, things go south almost immediately. In the church, uh, you've got three big examples of how that happened. When the, the ministry forgot that above them there was the bishop of all bishops who actually owned the church, you had the development of sacerdotalism. And I think I've walked you through this before, but sacerdotalism is an approach to theology that says God has given to his ministers the sacraments, and in sacerdotalism it's usually seven, not two, and by me giving you the sacraments, uh, I save your souls, because God gave me this ceremony that when I apply it to you, it's salvatory. Uh, Where did that come from? Well, it came from the ministers in Christ's church looking over the church and seeing, you know, there's not as much sanctification in the church as we would like to see happen. Uh, Christians are very worldly. Uh, We're in charge. We're the ministry. And we want to make things happen differently. So we're going to coerce them. We're going to take salvation into our own hands And we're going to apply it to you so that we can make you do what we want. How'd that work out? The truth is it worked out terribly. It it destroyed the gospel. It had to be reformed. It had to be brought back up. But they're not the only people who've done that. Inside the Protestant church, you have had uh, men abrogate authority to themselves. They forget the Lord talks to their Lord. Uh, The shepherding movement was like that, and I brought that up a couple times, but that was very definitely in the the body of Protestantism. And the same thing was happening. Protestant ministers who felt they were in charge and felt their people were not doing the things they wanted them to told them, you know, God has told you to obey me, and you'll do what I say or you'll be lost. And that didn't work out well either. Uh, Ask Carmen and I because we had a taste of it. Actually, modern-day liberalism is this way. Where did Shalmachian liberalism come from? It came initially from a man named Schalmacher, whose name in German means he who veils, which is really very creepy. Uh, Schalmacher felt that uh, the authority of God was just really not uh, the highest authority. He put something else above God, and... He was trying to save the church by bringing liberalism in. He wanted uh, to be the Lord of the church and make sure the church remained. How well has that gone? Whenever human beings forget the Lord talks to our Lord and it's all about our Lord because he's making the enemies of our Lord the footstools of our Lord and we're along for the ride as he's our Lord, when that is forgotten... Things go absolutely south. You see, all authority, all of it, in every way, has been given to our Lord Christ. And today, the issue in the church 
is absolutely and almost totally an issue of authority. In the first great era of the church after Pentecost, the big question that was debated was, what is the nature of God and what is the nature of Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, the question was, you know, what is the Godhead? And, you know, the answer is the Trinity. Uh, who is Jesus of Nazareth? He's the Christ. He's the God-man. But this was debated for hundreds of years, and the debate centered on the Word of God, which had been spirit-breathed. In the second great era of the church, the question was, how is a sinful man reconciled to God? And there's an answer to that. But you had the entirety of the Reformation and hundreds of years of debate, and it came out of the Word of God. Even, even the Roman Catholics, who were totally on the wrong side of the Reformation, uh, they would tell you, well, the Word of God is our authority. Now, they'd also put tradition beside it and say it's perfectly equal. But they, they pulled a kind of bait and switch because they said, well, you've got the written tradition... But you also have oral tradition. Uh, Christ taught the apostles many things, and they didn't get written down, but they came down to us through the tradition of the church. And so uh, in the Reformation, the Roman Catholics would say, the word of God is the authority, it's just tradition is also the word of God. They're totally wrong about that, but at least they're kind of pulling a bait and switch and saying God's word is the authority. Today, as we enter into another great era of the church, it's not particular doctrines that are being debated or particular moral questions. It's the very issue of authority itself. What is being attacked now is not the nature of God or the nature of justification. What's being attacked now is the nature of authority. Where do you find your authority for what you believe? Where do you find your authority for what you do? What do you stand on and say, this is my Lord, this is above me? Well, historically, there have been really four sources of authority. There has been human tradition, there has been emotion and experience, there has been reason, But for the Christian, the highest authority has always been Jesus Christ, the great bishop of the church, the great king of kings, governing me by his spirit and his word. This is the issue of authority. He is my bishop. He is above every pastor. He is above every ruler. He is above every authority that can be named. There are authorities that we heed but they are not the highest authority. The highest authority is the Lord Christ shepherding his people by his word, by his spirit. If this were a Congregationalist church in 1700, that would be taken for granted, effectively. That is the authority that the Christian stands on. Today, that's what's attacked. And you can hear it even in my conversation with Fuchs. Fuchs, have you ever met a godly bishop? Well, no, but if there was a godly bishop, why could Fuchs answer that way? It is because men today abrogate authority to themselves. Why are those bishops not godly? 
it's because they want the buck to stop with them. They believe that they know the way. They believe that they have the wisdom. They may be going in 4,000 different directions, but they believe they're the final authority. Why does the liberal church embrace every movement that flows through society? It's because they believe authority has been given to them to keep the church together. They forget the Lord is talking to their Lord. They have a bishop. They have a king. The word of this bishop and king is absolute. And if this bishop says the sky is green, the sky is green. If this bishop says something that your flesh recoils at, doesn't really matter what your emotion and experience tells you. The highest authority is the Lord Christ, the bishop of our souls, governing by his word and spirit. It is amazing, really, to be at the dawn of a new age because we are in this kind of third moment of the church, and the question is, what is the authority? Every question put before you, uh, every moral issue, Every should society do this or society do that. Underneath it is a forgetting the highest authority is Jesus Christ who governs by the Spirit and the Word. That's what we need to talk about, really. I mean, that answers pretty much every question. In the first era of the church, they talked about what does the Bible say about God? In the second era of the church, they said, what does the Bible talk about justification? In the third era of the church, they're saying, what Bible? And the Bible is our bishop's primary way of shepherding us. His spirit moves among us, but he uses the Bible. That is our Lord. God is speaking. The Lord talks to our Lord, and it's about our Lord, And we get shepherded as a flock by word and spirit. That is the fundamental of fundamentals. That is the base of all bases. If you are Christian, thanks be to God, you have a bishop. He is utterly perfect and dependable, and he shepherds you by the spirit and the word.